So we're here in Mark chapter number 12. We're in the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry, and Mark gives us a lot of detail in the final week of Jesus' life. Um, Jesus is on his way to the cross, and right now, in the middle of this final week of his life, of, of his earthly ministry, Jesus is dealing with a barrage of different questions and attacks that the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders of that day, were trying to throw at Jesus. And after each question and attack, Jesus would respond with wisdom, with grace, and with truth. And that brings us to our passage today. In Mark chapter 12, we've seen several encounters with Jesus in different uh, groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the religious elite, the rulers of that day. And now in verse 28, we read our passage for today. Verses 28 through 34, it says... And one of the scribes came, and having heard the, them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices." And when Jesus saw that he had answered discreetly, he said unto him, and here's the reasoning for the title of my message this morning. He says, thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that dared or durst, good old, old English word, dared to ask him any further question, any question. If you would like to, later on in our study today, we're going to look at the parallel passage of this same event that Luke records for us. I love Dr. Luke, and he's going to give us just a few more details into this story that will become very important at the end of our study today. But Mark uh, encapsulates a good portion of what we're going to be looking at here this morning. So Luke chapter 10, we'll be looking at a few verses there as well if you want to get your spot there. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is sufficient. Thank you that you inspired it. Thank you that you gave it to us so that we could better understand who you are. Thank you that from Genesis to Revelation, your word is a revelation of who you are and what you've done for us. And Father, may the truth of the gospel today be seen clearly in this encounter that Jesus had with what seems to be a sincere um, a scribe, a sincere seeker of truth, wanting to understand better um, the commands but Father, then to see what you said, to see what your son said at the end of this is fascinating. He was not far from the kingdom of God, but he was not there yet. And so Father, help us to better understand your word today, to see it in light of the whole of scripture and the revelation that you've given to us in the gospel. And may you be glorified in our worship today as we allow your word to speak to us. We pray these things in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All God's people said... Amen. Not far, but not there. Not far, but not there. 
This scribe that came to Jesus, who were scribes? Maybe just to give you a little bit of background and introduction. Who were scribes? They were students of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, uh, also, a scribe would be called a lawyer. So whenever you read the word lawyer in the Gospels, you would also uh, take, a, take away from that that this was a scribe, a lawyer, a, someone who is a religious student of God's word, specifically the Old Testament law. And so this man comes to Jesus. He is an expert in the Old Testament scriptures. And undoubtedly, he has been listening to Jesus interact with these different uh, encounters in previous verses, as we've already studied in the last uh, several weeks. And so he hears Jesus handling very well these theological challengers. And notice what, he, notice what this young man observes. Notice what this scribe observes in verse 28. He says he perceives that he had answered them well. So the young man hears the debate that Jesus is having with these religious leaders, and he senses there to be something unique about Jesus, that he's answering them well. Jesus' wise answers, notice here in the text, these wise answers that Jesus gave to these other groups pushed or opened up this man to now ask Jesus which commandment is the most important of all. Um, and we're going to get into that here in a second about why the religious leaders always were discussing amongst themselves what was the most important commandment in the Old Testament law. But I just want to start by asking you this question. Do you believe in reading this passage this morning that this scribe was sincere in his questioning? Mark seems to believe that at least on some level, he was honestly wanting to know. Now, we know that in most situations when people came to Jesus, especially if they were religious, they um, had ulterior motives. They were wanting to catch Jesus in a theological conundrum. They were wanting Jesus to say something against the Roman government. And so, uh, but at least on some level, of course, in the other gospel accounts that share this story, we get the idea that maybe he had double motives here. But at least on some level, Mark, Mark presents here that he was sincere in his questioning. And listen, I've met a lot of religious people in my life that are sincere in their searching. And we would uh, say today that sincerity is great and it's wonderful, but sincerity isn't a test of truth. Truth is a test of truth. And so even though this scribe was somewhat sincere in his really wanting to know, I think, I think he really wanted to know, at the same time, Jesus would conclude at the end that he was not there yet. He wasn't far, but he wasn't there yet. And so as we'll look at later in our, in our study, Luke chapter 10, we'll see how some of these other details come in that this scribe was wrestling with. And so Jesus says here in verse 34, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So it seems on some surface level, as we introduce ourselves to this study this morning, it seems that God was at work in the scribe's heart. This man had witnessed a debate between Jesus and his challengers. And, and um, no, we don't know with certainty whether the challengers that challenged Jesus ever had their minds changed. We do know that there was always a third group of people in, in the midst of those debates, right? I mean, whenever you have a debate, you have expert one on this side uh, with, with his set of beliefs. You have expert two on this side with his set of beliefs. And sometimes, of course, we forget that in the midst of those debates, you're probably not going to change expert one or expert, expert two's mind. But there's always a third audience to remember. 
and that is the people that are watching the debate. And I think this young man, this, this scribe, was watching the debate, and on some level it encouraged him to ask this question. I think that's just an important lesson for us to remember this morning as we look at the truth here in this passage, is that people are always watching and listening around us, aren't they? Um, they're watching our social media interactions with how we deal with the expert on the other side of our argument. And people are always watching. They're, they're, there's always a third silent group that's watching how we are encountering people with truth. And what we have to remember is, is that God might be working in and through how you respond, and this might stir, stir them to seek after God. Do you see how Jesus did that in this young man's life? The way that Jesus responded to his theological challengers, at least on some level, stirred a genuine desire for this man to ask Jesus this question. So what's the background of this question? The, the question that the scribe asked was not a new question. As I mentioned earlier, there were several different religious groups of that day that were debating the Old Testament law. This, this question had often been discussed among the adherents to Judaism, trying to boil down the expansive and exhaustive law of God in the Old Testament. Um, there were 613 different laws given in the Old Testament. Commands given. 238 of those were positive commands, meaning do this or do that. 365 of those commands were what we would call negative commands. Don't do this, don't do that. So over the years, there were attempts to, by these religious groups, to divide the laws up to simplify them. Can you imagine? <laughs> um, I don't know about you, but when I was a little tyke in church, I worked on memorizing the Ten Commandments. It was tough alone to memorize ten in order. Can you, can you imagine 613? Of course, within those 613 laws, you have three different kinds of commands, right? You have the moral commands of God, which the ten would mostly involve that. Then you have the ceremonial laws of God. And then you have the dietary laws that God gave specifically to the nation of Israel. And so there was a lot of debate about the law of God. Even at this time, the uh, Pharisees had created a lot of extraneous, extra rules to never get close to breaking the laws of God. So they had created all different kinds of trappings and, and uh, things around the law of God. So there was a lot of debate about this. And the reason that there was so much debate is because these religious leaders were really trying to keep the law. They were trying in their effort for the Jewish person, they were trying to keep the law. And so they had a lot of discussions and debates about the law so they could make sure that they were good law keepers. So keep that all in your mind as we deal with this question because it helps us to better understand the uh, passage as we think about the background. So look at verses 29 and 30. How does Jesus respond to his question, which is the first commandment of all? Verses 29 and 30. And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Notice here that in Jesus' response, he says something very fascinating. Of course, he's quoting the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter number uh, 6, verses 4 and 5. He, he quotes the Shema that every Jewish person would know well. 
And he quotes this, and he starts by saying this. He, he, he wants this lawyer, this scribe, to know that an understanding of the question that he is asking starts with knowing who God is. Do you see that in the text? Jesus says first in verse 29, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6. He says, the first of all the commands is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's a fascinating statement as you dig into it and study it. As, as I mentioned, it's a direct quote of Deuteronomy 6. This was a statement that declared God's desire to be in a covenant. And that word covenant is going to come up a lot in our study today because it's an understanding of covenant that better helps us understand this passage today and why Jesus would say something rather interesting when he says to the young man at the end of the passage, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So this statement of who God is here, that God is one, this statement is, a, is God's desire that he was to be in a covenant with Israel. And this statement admits the nature of, of God, the character of God, the unity of God. And the point of that statement is, is that you cannot love God, meaning the first command that Jesus gives here, you cannot love God without first rec recognizing that there is a true and living God. So the question that the lawyer brings to him presupposes the existence of God, but that's where it starts. And Jesus just wanted to affirm that in his understanding. So he reaffirms this idea that, listen, your whole understanding of the question you're bringing to me starts with you really understanding who God is. So a proper understanding of this passage, this answer from Jesus begins with a right belief in who God is and how he has chosen to reveal himself through the course of human history. This is vital. You see, the Jewish religious person in the first century did not truly know God. Jesus confronted them about it. He said, if you really knew God, then you would know the fact that God is standing here in your midst. He said, before Abraham was, ego a me in the Greek, I am and, 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 of course, many Jews understood exactly what Jesus meant when he said that. He was claiming divine deity. He was, he was declaring that he was the God in the burning bush in Exodus chapter number 3. Because he actually tried to pick up stones to stone, if you remember, in John chapter number 8. So the Jew didn't truly know God. They thought they did. Of course. Anybody who has grown up in a religious mindset wants to think that they have known God, that they have truly known God. But just keep in mind that the Jewish people who crucified Jesus to the cross could not even see the fact that God was standing right in front of them. If you remember a few weeks ago, we said that Jesus wept over the city because he said, you did not know your hour of visitation. You did not know that the Messiah had actually arrived right as Daniel the prophet said from Daniel chapter number 9. And so here... God himself in the flesh, incarnate, affirmed that he was there in their midst. And of course, we know later on in this week, they would proceed to murder him, to put him on the cross. So I say all that to say that an understanding of what we're looking at here today, both for the lawyer, the, the, the scribe, and also for us, our understanding of this passage starts with a proper view of who God is. But now we look at verse 30, where Jesus says, the greatest commandment, you want me to simplify all those 613 commands? Okay, let's simplify it and let's see if you can even keep two. You see, because here's what would happen for the Jew. 
they would look at all the things that they were doing right, and they would just kind of excuse the things that they weren't doing right. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Does that not sound like what human, human beings continue to do to this day? It's easy for us to say, God, look at all these things that I am doing right. But James chapter 2 is very clear. He says, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you're guilty of all. It's an all or nothing proposition. God doesn't grade on the curve or on our best efforts to keep the law. That's why keeping the law can never justify us in the eyes of a living God. So notice what Jesus says. He does. He is going to simplify the law for this young man, for this lawyer. He says in verse 30, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. So he says the great command here is to love God. This is primary. Why? Because it all starts from there, doesn't it? A proper love for God from there flows all other relationships. We are commanded to love God. Now, at first, this might sound a bit awkward to us and even nar narcissistic. Um, what do I mean? Do you command your spouse to love you? How does that work? Do you command your children to love you? That kind of sounds self-serving, doesn't it? But not for God. That's not, this, that's not for God. God commands us to love him. And, and, and again, that might sound awkward at first, but it's not for God. Why do I say that? Because actually it's God's love for us that he commands us to love him. Why? Because God knows that without loving him, we will be truly lost in this universe. I like how Augustine said it. He says, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And so God commands us to love him, but it is for our good. It is for our growth. It's ultimately so that we can have a relationship with him. And so, he, and, and so Jesus here simplifies really the first four commands of the Ten Commandments. Commandments one through four deal with our relationship with God. And so he says, listen, if you love God you'll keep those commands. So Jesus is trying to answer the scribe's question by simplifying all those Old Testament laws. He says, okay, the greatest command is love God. Because if you love God, from those will flow a right relationship with God, but then from your relationship with God will flow a right relationship with others. Commands 5 through 10. And so God doesn't command us to love him without demonstrating a love first for us, an awakening love within us because of his eternal and unconditional love for us. You know, I just want to make a few statements here about God's love. First of all, he is worthy of our love. He is worthy of our love. And you can write these down in your notes. God is worthy of our love. There is no doubt about that. We find wholeness in his love. Um, a love for God will keep us from evil and it will draw us to himself. The uh, humanity... The human heart is bombarded with a litany of lesser loves in this world that compete for the attention and the affection of our hearts. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The power of a greater affection. We find wholeness in his love. He is worthy of our love. We find protection in his love. We find protection in his love. You know, I love my children, 
My children are very near and dear to my heart. And um, my great heart's desire is for my children to understand God's limitless love for them. And that when they understand God's limitless love for them, that it will ignite in them a love for God. Why? Because I know that the greatest protection and fulfillment in their life will come from understanding his love, receiving his love, and showing his love to the world. But here's the issue with the greatest command to love God. What it does is it leads us then to address the greatest sin. And what is the greatest sin? The greatest sin is our lack of love for God. You see, Jesus summarizes and simplifies all those commands of the Old Testament that all these religious groups were having debates over, right? Even the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus preached in Matthew 5, he was talking about the law, and he heightened the true standard of the law because they were all patting themselves on the back that they were outwardly following the law. But Jesus says, listen, no, 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 no. You've defined the law wrong. The law attacks the real inward issue, the issue of the heart. And so he says here, the greatest command is a love for God, but here's the reality that brings us to revealing the greatest sin, and that is a lack of love for God. John 3.19 tells us that men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-4, through 4, describing the last days, describing the days that uh, we can turn on the TV and see. It says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. That sound familiar? Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. Does that sound familiar? Truce breakers, false accusers, incontinence, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Does that sound familiar? Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. You see, Jesus was simplifying the commands, but in no way did that get anybody off the hook for the reality of what the law exposes. And that is, is that in so many ways, we don't love God. As these verses here from other passages show us. Now, uh, I'm going to use an illustration. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's an attempt to illustrate this great issue that we deal with. Do you remember when the rebellion stole the plans for the Death Star? Anybody remember that? You know, Star Wars people out there. If you haven't seen Star Wars, then just, you know, listen for the next couple seconds. What happened in the rebellion when they discovered the plans for the Death Star? They found out that there was this fatal flaw in the Death Star built into its core. And just one shot from Luke Skywalker's X-Wing would cause this chain reaction and the Death Star would go up in smoke. Well, if you'll allow the illustration, we are like the Death Star. <laughs> what do I mean? The enemy, Satan, is seeking to blast away at our love for God. And without a genuine love for God, we will commit all kinds of egregious sins. At the core issue, the core problem of humanity is that they have not loved God. And yes, a love of God will preserve us from a chain reaction of errors that destroy us from within. But that's the reality, is that this great command reveals to us the great sin. And that is, is that men truly don't love God because it says that their deeds, their inward heart is the problem. They need a heart transplant. They need a transformation from the inside out. 1 John 2, 15, uh, 15 through 16 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. 
If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so we see this great sin, the lack of love for God and a love rather for ourselves, for the fleeting pleasures of this life. So maybe the question then becomes, how do we find a genuine love for God awakened in our lives? Well, that's what the good news of the gospel is all about. You see, 1 John 4, 19 says, we will love him when we realize because he first loved us. Do you see the order there? The gospel declares that even that while we were yet sinners, go to the next verse, guys, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. It says, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see how a genuine love for God is awakened and given to us? It's through the good news of the gospel that even when we were yet without strength, enemies separated from God, God cast upon us his unconditional love through the covenant that he made with Abraham. That through the seed of Abraham, ultimately, the Messiah would come, Jesus Christ, who would live a perfect, sinless life. The seed that had been promised from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And that Jesus Christ would go to the cross in the greatest demonstration of love ever given to the universe. See, the great sin is, is that we do not love God as we should. And the reason is, is because we haven't found the power of a greater affection without knowing Christ as our Savior. But when we become believers in Christ and followers of Jesus, we find that there's a new power given to us called, called the expulsive power of a greater affection. I love how Thomas Chalmers from his sermon says this. He says, our problem is that naturally our lives are guided and controlled by a love for the world. What can we do? Try harder, resolve to do better? That's how so much of religion tries to do. We just try to do better, try harder, try to convince ourselves that the world is not really all alluring after all. No, that is altogether incompetent and ineffectual for nobody can dispossess the heart of an old affection but by the expulsive power of a new one. We, we cannot choose what we love but always love what seems desirable to us. Thus, we will only change when what we love when something proves itself to be more desirable to us than what we already love. I will then always love sin in the world until I truly sense that Christ is better. And so Jesus here just really brings forward in a simple way. I mean, I love the simplicity with how Jesus answers this young man, but at the same time it exposes the great command, exposes the great sin that humanity does not love God. Which then brings us to the second command that Jesus summarizes here, verse 31. He says, And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. So we see our great responsibility, and that is to love our neighbor. When we have a genuine love for God, we will that will inevitably lead to a love for my neighbor. 
There's a myth that floats around a lot within Christian circles that I've heard over the years, and it's this. I can love God, but I can dislike people. Or, I can love God, but I despise people. You know that's flat out wrong. I'm not saying that we can't be upset with what people do. I'm not saying that we can't be heartbroken over the choices that they're making. But why is that wrong on its face? Because every human being is made in the image of God. And to not love others is to not truly love God. 1 John 4, 21, and this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. Now, you cannot love the invisible God without truly loving visible people. A person who refuses to love others clearly hasn't interacted with God. I love how one theologian states it. He says, uh, a Christianity which would use the vertical preoccupation, meaning our relationship with God, as a means to escape from its responsibility for and in the common life of man is a denial of the incarnation. You see, God became man. And so we have our relationship with God, but we have our relationship with others. The very incarnation of Jesus Christ shows this, of God's love for the world manifested in Christ. Now, what's interesting about this passage is now where we're going to go as we begin to conclude. Mark chapter 12, verse 34. Just want to end this encounter here and then look over at just a few details from Luke 10. Jesus answers, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And as you read the intervening verses, it seems like this guy thinks, oh, cool, I've got these covered. You know, Jesus just simplified the greatest command to love God and to love neighbor. I, I think I've got these. And, and the reason I say that is look over at Luke chapter number 10. This is fascinating, okay? Look at Luke chapter number 10. So this scribe thinks, cool, I got this. Jesus just took 613 laws and he simplified it into two. Love God, love neighbor. I, I think I probably, probably got this. Proof. Luke chapter 10, verses 28 and following. Look at it. Verse 28. And he said, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. Here's what the law basically said. If you are able to keep the commands, you'll live. But if you're not able to, you will die. Deuteronomy makes that very clear. But look at verse 29. But he, speaking of the scribe that had asked the question, but he, and will everybody read out loud the next four words with me in your scriptures? Ready? One, two, three. Willing to justify himself. There it is. Was this young man, was this scribe sincere on some level? I, I believe he was. I believe Mark was accurate in what he said. And I love how each gospel writer gives you a little bit more uh, complementary information. Not contradictory information, but just more detail to understand the story. And here, after Jesus says, love God, love your neighbor, the man then asks this question, who is my neighbor? Why did he ask that question? 
He asked that question because he wanted to know who he didn't have to love. And here's what's so incredible about what Jesus is about to do. And I'm not going to read the whole story because I'm going to assume you're probably pretty familiar with it or you can read it later. The rest of Luke 10 is an illustration, a parable called the Good Samaritan. Do you know the relationship that the Jews had with the Samaritans in Bible times? It was not good. Samaritans were what you would call half-breeds. They were, they were a product of an intermarriage between a Jew and a Gentile. And so, and so Samaritans were really looked on as, you know, do you want to talk about the roots of racism? There's some racism right there. There's some prejudices there, there right? So the Jew did not look favorably on the Samaritan. And so Jesus is about to give a story where the Samaritan is the hero. For the Jew hearing this, it had to rub their skin the wrong way like petting a cat backwards. In fact, you get that. And here's another little detail. Because Jesus asked this man at the end of that parable, who do you think was neighbor to the guy who was beaten up on, on the side of the road? And the scribe couldn't even say the Samaritan. He said, on him who showed mercy. Which again, gives you a little insight, doesn't it? So Jesus says to this scribe, you're not far from the kingdom of God, but you're not there yet. Why? Because this scribe was still thinking that he could justify himself there's the words, the word of God. He could justify himself through keeping the law. And the reason he asked the question, who's my neighbor, is he was looking for the loophole. That's what they were always asking. They were always asking, okay, what's the rule loophole that I can get around to make sure I still keep the command, but I don't really have to keep it with people I don't like? And that brings us, finally, to the law's great purpose. You see, as we read a story like this, as we read an encounter like this, we have to read it through the proper lens. Have you ever had glasses that became uh, ineffective in helping, to, help, helping you to see clearly? Your prescription got worse? That happens over time, doesn't it? And when we read God's Word, it's important that we have the right glasses on, that we read these passages through an understanding of who Jesus was ministering to. Who was he ministering to? Jesus was a born of a woman made under the law to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5. And so Jesus was ministering primarily to Jewish people who had for 1,400 years thought, and they just missed it because God never really taught this. He never taught that you could be justified by keeping the law. The whole purpose of the law, as Galatians 3 tells us, that, that we'll look at in a moment, is that it was to bring us to Christ. So we see here the law's great purpose. Why did Jesus recite these laws to this man? Well, he was simplifying them for him. I think he was trying to give an honest answer to the scribe's question. But he was also trying to expose to the scribe that even in simplifying these laws, you've not kept them. You're still trying to justify yourself. You're still trying to find a loophole. And that brings us to an, to an understanding of the law's great purpose. Romans 3, 19 and 20 says this. 
Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, the Jewish people, that every mouth may be stopped. Why did God give the law? To close, to silence our arguments that we can justify ourselves in the sight of God through attempt at keeping the law. That all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And that points us out to the reality of what the law's great purpose was. Number one, the law's purpose is to expose our sin. That's what Jesus was trying to help this scribe see. He says, listen, you're not far, but you're not there yet. You see, the law teachers of Jesus' day have been negligent. And Jesus had to come in and do their job before he could do his own. Meaning that before he could save the world from their lostness, he had to convince them that they were really lost. They didn't think that they were lost. They didn't think that they were in need of saving. They thought that they had all this down. And so Jesus gave them the full extent of the law. He says, listen, be therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. Hello? No one's ever lived up to that standard except one. Jesus Christ the righteous. And so before Jesus could give himself as the answer to mankind's problem, he had to make sure mankind was asking the right question. Who's going to deliver me? Remember Paul living under the law? He, he, he gives a biographical account of his life in Romans 7. And he says, man, I tried to live according to the law. And the harder I tried, the worse I failed. The things which I hate, that I find myself doing. And the things that I would like to do, I'm not doing. Oh, wretched man, who shall deliver me? And what was Paul's answer? a person, but I thank God that I have the victory through Jesus Christ. And so you see, the law exposes us for who we really are. It's like a mirror, James says. The law is like a mirror. It shows us what we really look like. It exposes who we are. Romans 7, verse 7 and 3, verse 20 point that out. So it exposes our sin. You can put those verses up on the screen, guys. I'm not going to read them for sake of time. So it exposes our sin. Number two, the purpose of the law, according to God's word and the gospel, is to defeat our effort. In this story with the scribe, you can tell he was still trying. He wanted Jesus to simplify it so he could make sure that he was doing it in his own efforts. But you know what the law really does? It shatters any hope that we can do it. It defeats our effort. Look at verses 10 and 11 of Romans 7. And the commandment which was ordained to life. Listen, there was no problem on the law side. And I love how Hebrews, and I believe Romans also says this, was the law sin? Of course not. No, I'm the one that was sinful, sold under sin. But notice that he says, the law which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death for sin, taking occasion by the commandment. Here's an example of that. Do you want to hear an illustration? Don't think about a purple elephant. Do not think about a purple, stop thinking about a purple elephant. The moment I made a law is the moment you started struggling with thinking about a purple elephant. Why? Because the moment I brought up the law, it incited something in your thinking. And that's what Paul's saying here. The moment the commands came, where did they come from? Well, we see in the garden, right? Adam and Eve. They thought that they could discern between good and evil. And you know what God just simply wanted? Them to trust that he was good. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and it slew me. John Bunyan said, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. 
Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The law's purpose to expose our sin, to defeat our effort. And finally, the law, why was it given to us? It was given to bring us to Christ. Galatians 3 is a fascinating passage that helps us better understand Genesis 15 and all the gospel. Why was Christ given? Why was the law given? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come. Galatians 3, 19. But verse 24 of Galatians 3 says it very clearly. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto cross under Christ, that we might be justified. How? By faith. So here's the point. This scribe, he was not far. He believed in a God. He believed that that God created the world. He was sincere in his beliefs. He was sincere in his efforts to try to keep the law. But he was still seeking to justify himself through efforts that he thought he could do in order to gain favor with God. And Titus 3 says it so clearly. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. So Jesus came to reveal grace to those who are confident of their own righteousness and are incapable of receiving it. You see, the self-righteous just don't see their need. What they need is the law, and Jesus gave it to them in abundance in his earthly ministry. But the larger purpose of Jesus was to give his life and his righteousness. So he told stories about God justifying sinners and welcoming home prodigals and, and, and shepherds finding lost sheep. Then he went to the cross fulfilling the law on our behalf because we could never do it. That he might be the end of the law for all who believe, Romans 10 verse 4. Jesus came to set the captives free to give sight to the blind the law sets no one free but it does reveal your need for the great deliverer it shows us our great need for a sacrifice that would bring an end to all other Old Testament sacrifices of the old covenant system for the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, underline it, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they have not ceased to be offered? The writer's saying, hey, if they made you complete and perfect, then they would have ceased to be offered. But they were offered year after year because the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there are remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. So that's why John the Baptist that day when he saw Jesus coming to the water, he would declare, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. There are so many religions in this world that say, I'm trying my best. I'm giving my effort. I'm trying to do what I can to make sure that I'm right with God. And you know what the gospel says? It is 
finished, paid in full, to tell us die. Jesus Christ finished the work that you could never fulfill. And the question is, will you either try to give a perfect performance underneath the law, which no one ever can, or will you put your faith in the perfect one who did keep the law and then became your sacrifice for you? That is the good news of the gospel. And that's what we celebrate today and remember as we observe the Lord's table.